Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke as we continue to uh, read through this section on the infancy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, in fact, the God-man, but he has only recently, in terms of the Gospel accounts, come to be the God-man. He has always been God, but he has not always been man. However, when he becomes man, he comes into the world not as a fully grown man, but of course as a newborn child. And even in his infancy, in the very early days of his life, there are amazing things happening surrounding him. And amazing things proclaimed about him and about what he will be. We read about these in Luke chapter 2 especially. And this morning we're going to read verses 21 through 40 and look at the second half of this which we began last week. So if you would follow along as I read Luke chapter 2 verses 21 through 40. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up. And began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When we were here last week, we looked at the first part of this section and we came to understand that Jesus had been brought up to the temple of the Lord, really for two big reasons. 
One of them was in the simple course of action of carrying out the instructions of the law of Moses concerning the firstborn in any family. Jesus was named. He was circumcised according to Jewish custom and according to the law of Moses. And then he was brought up when he was 40 days old for his mother to go through the purification ritual that was required according to the law and to present Jesus to the Lord in a formal way, which was the requirement for all the firstborn males in Israel. As we saw in verse 23, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. When Mary and Joseph came up, they also, along with this, offered the appropriate sacrifice. According to what was said in the law of the Lord, verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And many of you may have noticed as uh, he is here that what we have is sacrifices being offered at the temple concerning the one who would himself ultimately be the ultimate sacrifice. The one who would come into the world and who had come into the world, not only to go through these rituals, but to be the one who ultimately would, would fulfill what was pointed at by these as he himself was going to be one day offered on the cross. And so Jesus underwent all of these rituals according to the law. But the other big thing that was going on here is just simply this, getting Jesus to the temple so that he would encounter two people who could prophesy about him. Two people who would be able to tell everyone who was around and to give a focus message to Jesus' parents about just who this Jesus was going to be. And you say, well, they already know, his parents did, who he's going to be because he's received prophecy or Joseph and Mary have both received prophetic messages from angels who visited them directly. But there's even more that's revealed here. And that's what we're going to look at this morning when we get into the messages given by Simeon in particular and also by Anna. There is new information about Jesus, significant information about Jesus that is very nuanced and it's very careful. It, it draws some very specific things about Jesus that many people often miss and yet that are vital to understanding the mission that Jesus came to carry out. Jesus didn't just come into the world to be the son of God. He didn't just come into the world to save people. But in the process of doing that, there were a number of ways that he would carry out his ministry. And there are a number of things that would be true about him and what he said that would cause responses that are perhaps unexpected. Responses that are even inappropriate. Responses that are both evil and good and Jesus is beginning here to be shown to be one who would be the cause of a kind of division in the people someone who would be responded to in ways of both belief and unbelief Simeon's message is going to tell us about this before we get there we want to understand a little bit about what's going on and where they were Jesus was brought up to the temple uh, when you think of a temple, you may have an image in your mind. Uh, but the temple here is the temple that was in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem temple had originally been built by King Solomon in the 10th century B.C. It was 
built by Solomon to replace, if you will, the tabernacle, the temporary big tent structure where all the sacrificial system and the formal worship of Israel took place according to the law of Moses. Well, this temple that Solomon built was glorious. It was full of splendor. It had all kinds of uh, expensive materials built into it. And it was done in a way that was pleasing to God as indicated by the fact that when the temple was dedicated, the spirit of the Lord or the glory of the Lord came and actually filled the temple. So this was an appropriate place to worship. But unfortunately, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies some 400 years later when the Babylonians came and put the city under siege and then ultimately wiped it out. Well, later, after some 70 years, it was rebuilt under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel when the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem after being commissioned by King Cyrus. And eventually, hundreds of years after that, King Herod, Herod the Great, took up the refurbishment and expansion of this second temple, what is known as the second temple, beginning in the year 18 BC. So we're talking just a few years before Jesus comes into the world. And this temple would prove to be a spectacular project that was amazing to such men as Jesus' disciples, to the point where when leaving the temple after hearing Jesus excoriate the scribes and the Pharisees, all they could think about was how glorious the buildings were. All they could do is say, look at these temples, look at this temple, look at this thing. And Jesus said, there's not one stone that's going to be left upon another when it comes to this temple. And sure enough, the construction lasted for several decades of the temple, but the finished product lasted only a few years before the siege and destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 66 through 70, at which point the temple was left in ruins. However, the temple renovation itself would have been completed by the time that Jesus was here, while at the same time there would have been ongoing work going on around him in the courts. So lots of construction, lots of activity, lots of people, and the temple itself actually functioning in a very proper and appropriate way. And it was functioning enough for Simeon to be able to enter it and for the parents of this child to run into him as they came to obey God's instructions for the newborn child. And that's exactly what we're going to find this morning. Uh, Basically, the point of this passage, the rest of the passage, is this. That two godly prophets encounter the baby Jesus at the temple. And they bear witness to his identity and to his God-appointed future ministry. Two godly prophets encounter the baby Jesus at the temple. And they bear witness to his identity and to his God-appointed future ministry. We get to find out what it's going to be like when Jesus grows up well before he even begins to crawl or to walk. What is Jesus going to be like? These prophets tell us, we'll call this Testimonies at the Temple Part 2. And now this morning, having been introduced to Simeon last week, we get to hear Simeon's testimony about Jesus. What does Simeon, this prophet, testify about Jesus? Well, it says in verse 28, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. And the first thing that we hear from him are his words about Jesus' role. His words about Jesus' role. What is Jesus going to be? What is Jesus going to do? He says in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. The first thing to note here is that Jesus has fulfilled God's promise. Jesus has 
fulfilled God's promise. And this is not just God's promise in general. God made many promises about Jesus. He made many promises to Israel and to the nations about things that Jesus would do. But there's a specific promise in view here, which is the promise that Simeon had received. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now Simeon says, you are releasing your bondservant or your slave to depart in peace. Israel, as a nation, was in captivity. We sing the song, don't we? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and do what? Ransom captive Israel. Ransom captive Israel. They are in captivity. They need to be redeemed. They need to be bought out of their sin and of their slavery to this other ruling nation. In this case, the Roman Empire, one of many nations to have conquered them in successive order, as we learn in the book of Daniel. But it wasn't just the nation of Israel. It was also Simeon, who was in a kind of captivity himself, which was that he was in bondage to the burden of God's word not yet being fulfilled to him. He was enslaved to this. God's word had not yet come true to him. And I say not yet because Simeon knew as we all know, that God's word always does come true. But here, he was unable to do something until it happened, namely, to die. He was unable to die. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, this is not necessarily something where we would say, you know, go ahead and hurry this up because I want to die. But he's saying, because of this, there is a way in which now I can go to the grave, and that is, as he says, in peace. You are enabling me to die in peace. We hear the phrase, don't we, all the time? Now I can do what? Die in peace. Now I can die in peace. Why? Because I've been able to experience the best restaurant I've ever gone to. Or because I've had some other type of human experience that's just glorious. And I've kind of reached the peak of human experience. That's the way that we use the phrase. Now I can die in peace. Simeon was using it a little bit differently. Because he had a specific word from God about it. But also... Because he is confident. He knows that he is going to see this. And there's one more component of this, which is Simeon is looking for what? According to verse 25. The consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Why can Simeon die in peace? Well, many people in this world can die in peace because they feel like they've kind of gotten all that life has to offer. And they say, it's never going to get better than this. I'm never going to experience a higher mountaintop. Well, I can be satisfied with what God has done for me in my life. Or really, if they're not even thinking about God, I can be satisfied with what life has given me. But Simeon was looking for something else. Simeon could die because he was confident that he would not be there forever. He could die because he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He knew that even when this one came and then he would die, that he would be part of that restoration, that, that uh, bringing Israel back into the things that God had promised to them and what this implicitly meant for him, which is that he would be raised from the dead to be part of this. This is undergirding so much of the Old Testament promises and not just uh, implicitly, but also directly in such places as Ezekiel 37. When God says these bones are going to come back together and they're going to be risen up from the grave and they're going to be planted back in their own land. Simeon knew that his death was not the end. 
And so it is for everyone who belongs to God. They can look for the consolation of Israel. They can rejoice in God's promise about these kinds of things. But their joy doesn't depend upon whether or not they die before it happens because they know they'll be raised on the last day. And this is the way that Christians hope as well. We don't mourn as those who have no hope, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because we know that Christ is going to raise us and one day we will all be with the Lord. But Simeon says he can die and depart in peace because God has fulfilled his word in Jesus Christ. The second thing that he says about Jesus and about his role is that Jesus brings salvation. Jesus brings salvation. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What he is saying is this, that God doesn't just save people and God isn't just going to deliver Israel, but he's going to do that through a specific person and that salvation is bound up in this person. When he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, he is looking at Jesus and saying that salvation is embedded in him. This is connected with him inseparably. Jesus is Salvation. This is why Paul says in 2, Thessalonians, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, he refers to the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus has many things yet to do, but he says, this child, this child is the one who will do it. This child is the one who is going to rescue us. You can imagine a conquered territory being oppressed by a foreign army. And the uh, soldiers who are fighting to get back in there and to liberate that territory. You, uh, you understand that when they see the airplane fly overhead that belongs to the people who are coming to get them, the battle is not won yet. The actual victory has not been accomplished, but they are their salvation. This military, this plane, this group of soldiers we can hear, the tank that we see far off, that is our salvation. And so it is with Christ. Though he had not yet done his redeeming work of going to the cross or rising from the dead, nonetheless, it could be said of him that he is salvation. And so it is true for us even today that salvation is found in no one else because Jesus is God's salvation. He says about Jesus and about this salvation, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. This word prepared gives us the idea that God is the one who has done it, that God has been planning it, and that God has done the work. He says this has been done in the presence or in the sight of all peoples. And you notice here the sort of quirky way that he says this. Uh, he doesn't say all people. He says all peoples. If he were to say all people, then we might think, uh, well, this is just everyone everywhere, sort of generally speaking. Um, if he were to say all the people, as it would be here, if it was singular, if it was just people with no S, uh, then it might refer to the whole nation of Israel. And this is the way that this was used in every other occasion where these words show up when it's all singular. It refers to the, the people, the nation of Israel as a whole. But there's one other place where the language is the same, and that is in Romans 15, 11, where Paul cites... An Old Testament passage saying, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples praise him. Making clear that when we see this phrase, all the peoples, he's referring to the collective group and yet the distinction between them of all of the people groups of the world. 
the different nations, the different tribes, the different tongues. This is not just all people broadly speaking, but what this is saying is that God intends to display his salvation in the sight of all of the different people groups of the world. And so what this means is this salvation is not something that is reserved for some sort of one specific nationality or culture. For the people of Jesus' day, the Jews around him would need to understand what was long ago taught in the Old Testament, that the salvation of God was not just for the Jews. For us today, we need to understand that salvation is not just for our nation. And for those who would come to the Bible and would say, well, that's just a kind of religion for Westerners. That's just for people who are out of that kind of stream of thought of Western civilization. And it's not really the way that things are. No, this is saying that the message of salvation is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And that person of Jesus Christ came into the world to display God's salvation and to bring it to every kind of person. Every kind of person. And so people not just from all over the world, geographically speaking, but also culturally, nationally, ethnically speaking, will partake of this salvation. The question then arises, how then should we view, quote, all the peoples? How should we think about them? We might have various perspectives on other people groups that we have acquired throughout the course of our lives according to the flesh, ways of thinking about people groups. And it might have to do with humility or arrogance. It might have to do with what is appropriate or not. It might have to do with caring about them or not. And it might have to do with seeing them only in the kinds of terms that people bring up humanly speaking. But these two verses verses 30 and 31 imply a different perspective that we need to have, which is that the salvation which is in Christ, is for all the people. And we should want them to have it. We should want God's glory to be on display through the salvation of all of these various peoples. God has prepared something for their good, and we should want their good too. And the highest good comes for them, not just in what we can do for them incidentally or as we have opportunity, but in their participation in the salvation that is in Christ. And so we ought to make sure That the gospel is going forth not only to one nation, to one group of people, but to all, to as many as possible. And we ourselves should not think about them in terms of human categories. We should not think of them in terms of the way that the people around us think about other peoples. Instead, we should think about them as belonging to God and as those whom God seeks to redeem in Jesus Christ. Well, he continues this theme but in a different way when we get to verse 32 there is a third truth about Jesus that Simeon brings which is this Jesus is a light to the nations he is a light to the nations he says in verse 31 uh, excuse me verse 32 a light of revelation to the Gentiles to the Gentiles now I don't know about you but if you grew up in church maybe you hear the word Gentiles and you say well that just sounds like people that the Jews didn't want to be with And you didn't really understand it any more than that. What does the word Gentiles mean? Well, it basically just means the nations. It means the nations. And it, in certain contexts, or most contexts, in fact, uh, refers to the nations in distinction from Israel. It's in distinction from the Jews. It's a little bit like when we talk about space. 
we talk about space, like somebody is going to go into space. Well, technically speaking, aren't we all already in space? I don't think that there's sort of a carve out for people who live on earth that we're suddenly outside the confines of space. But what do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about outer space. We're talking about outer, out of the atmosphere, out of, you know, off of earth some distance that probably has a technical distance, but I don't know what it is. Um, We earthlings are technically just as much part of space as any other uh, heavenly object. But when we talk about it, we just say space. Well, the same thing is true of the Gentiles. The Jews would talk about the Gentiles and not say, well, we're among those nations as well. They would see them in distinction from, from them. So when it says in verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, this is in distinction from the Jews. And he's going to focus on the Jews in the second half of the verse. Now, to many Jews, these Gentiles were, of course, the epitome of what was to be despised. And in many cases, there were good reasons for that. Because they worshipped idols, they rejected God, they lived lives that were absolutely despicable, they rebelled against their creator, they weren't concerned with what God said, and the Bible is not shy about saying those things, and they were many, in many ways very ignorant about God's will. But the Jews took that as a license to have only one kind of response to them, which was to despise them. It was to despise them. And God tried to show them otherwise in many cases, such as in the book of Jonah, when he sent Jonah to Nineveh and he saved a whole city full of Gentiles, despite Jonah's objections and his hesitancy to go there, not out of self-preservation necessarily, but because he despised them. He didn't want them to receive the compassion that he knew God would give them. And so Israel had one perspective about the Gentiles, but God, on the other hand, had a different perspective, and he still does. The Gentiles are not a group of nations to be discarded, but rather to be redeemed. And so God says in the passage that Simeon cites here, Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, Ask now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He's speaking of this servant, Israel, who would be Jesus. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob's and restore the preserved ones of Israel. Oh, is that all? All you would do is save an entire nation of rebellious Israelites. That's too small? And he says, yeah, that's too small. I will also make you a light of the nations. So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Notice here that it has always, always been God's plan for the Gentiles, for those outside of Israel to participate in his salvation. It has always been his plan. This was not his plan B when Israel rejected Jesus. This has always been laid up in the Old Testament. It has always been God's plan all the way back when he promised that in Abraham and his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is not something new, though there are new components to it that have been revealed in the New Testament. This is something that is an old promise, but the Jews missed it, or at least they didn't like it and they put it out of their minds. And so in Isaiah 42, verse 6, speaking of this servant, none other than Christ, he says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, and I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. 
And so Jesus is going to bring something to all the nations, to the Gentiles. What is he going to bring? It says, you will be a light of revelation. A light of revelation. New truth being brought to them so that they can understand. Things that are revealed from God that they can't figure out on their own. They have to be told from somewhere. And this is revealed. And he refers to it as light. Why? Well, the nations, the Gentiles, walked in darkness. In darkness. Not in darkness from the sun, of course. They got the same sunshine as anyone else. Unless they lived in certain places that tended not to have so much. But this is not about physical light, of course. This is about spiritual ability to understand. So Paul, for example, says in Ephesians 4, verse 17... So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. There is a spiritual darkness that every unbelieving person has. They cannot see. They can't understand. They might be in the same room, so to speak, but it's light for Christians and it's dark for unbelieving people. They just can't see. There is a darkness to their vision and they're unable to understand what is going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what happens with Jesus? He brings the light. Sometimes I come into the living room in the morning and one or more of my children are there and they're reading. And sometimes the lights are off. And I say, what are you doing? Turn the lights on so you can see. You have to turn the lights on. This is what Jesus does. He brings the light. He brings the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 refers to God as the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Colossians 1, 13 says that we as Christians were rescued from the domain of darkness. And so I ask you here this morning, have you found your way to the light? Have you found your way to the light? Say, how do I know if I've found my way to the light? Do you understand the Bible? We're not talking about every single point of it. There are things that are hard to understand. Peter says in 2 Timothy 3, even some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. There are things that you have to work at. But do you understand it generally and say, you know, this makes sense. I really like this. I should be following this. Is your life different than the unbelievers around you? Do you do things specifically because you're a Christian that are in line with God's word? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you want to go to the Bible? Do you want to pray? Even though sometimes there are things that hinder us from this, do you have a desire toward godliness? And of course, foundationally, have you given up trying to please God by your own efforts? And have you trusted your soul to him to save you from your sins because you know you deserve the judgment that God would give you. If not, you're living in darkness, but Christ brings the light and he's a light of revelation, not just to this one nation that he came from, but to anyone, to all the nations. Jesus will enlighten your eyes when you put your faith in him. And so he says he is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory 
to your people Israel. It's interesting that he puts the Gentiles first here. In Romans 1.16, Paul says that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And this simply means that the gospel came first to the Jew and it was for them and it's in accord with the promises. But then it's also for Gentiles. But Luke's narrative emphasizes the other side of the equation, which is that even though the gospel came first to the Jews chronologically, it is every bit as much for the nations. Every bit as much for everyone in the world. And yet also, it is for Israel. And it is so for Israel even in certain special ways. Because it says in verse 32 that Jesus is not only a light of revelation to the Gentiles, but he is also the glory of your people, Israel. He is the glory of Israel. It is not so much that he appears glorious to them or he brings them glory, though there are elements of both of those which are true. But rather, he is the one who is their boast. He is their glory. He is the one that they identify with. And he's the one that they brag about and boast about in all the right kind of ways. If you have a favorite sports team and they win the championship, what do you want to do? You go get the shirt and you go get the hat and you go get the plaque and the magazine cover from when they won. And you want to tell people, yeah, my team won the title. Sometimes you might pass uh, small towns driving out in the country or driving down the highway to a, on, on a long trip. And you see signs that say, such and such a town, home of this person, this famous person. What are they doing? They're glorying about the fact that this person came from here. They're one of us. And so it is with Israel. He is the glory of Israel. There is no one who is more worthy of saying, yeah, he comes from us than Jesus. And it is not wrong for them to do that as long as they recognize that it is not by any good deed of their own that he is part of them. Here, he is a glory of Israel. This light to the nations then will not simply be something that is among the nations traveling around, but rather he is like a beacon, like a lighthouse planted in Israel and shining out to all the nations for their benefit. Israel is, so to speak, then where the lighthouse is built and the light shines upon all. Well, having spoken directly to the Lord in praise-filled prayer, Simeon now turns his speech horizontal. Instead of speaking upward, as it were, he now speaks sideways to the people who are in front of him. And we find this in verses 33 to 35. Uh, he has some words for Jesus' parents and for his mother in particular. His words for Jesus' parents. Verse 33 tells us that already his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. So just this alone is enough for them to take and to go back and to marvel and to talk about it. What did he mean by this? What is this going to be like? How is our son going to do this? But now... He turns to them and tells them even more. We find, first of all, his blessing of them. Simeon blessed them. And then we find his predictions for Mary. He said to Mary, his mother, the child's mother, Jesus' mother. And he speaks directly to her. And these are very sobering words. They are words that will get her attention if she didn't already have it focused upon him. They're words that will be surprising and serious. As Daryl Bach points out about Simeon's statement here, his topic is, quote, Jesus, division, and Israel, end quote. Uh, I want you to notice 
in addition to the main subjects of Jesus' division in Israel, notice the widespread impact. He says he is appointed for the fall and rise of many. Verse 35, the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. There are uh, some people who have impact upon others on a small scale, their family, their friends, um, maybe just one person. Jesus was appointed for something different, to have a very widespread impact, a widespread effect. His ministry would impact many people. But they won't all respond favorably to him because the first thing we learn here is that Jesus will bring division. Jesus will bring division. Behold, he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. The fact that he is appointed has at least two ramifications. First of all, he has been put in place by someone else, namely God. And also the fact that he will carry out this purpose. It is appointed for him to do this. It is certain that Jesus will cause this division. And he says that he's appointed for the fall and rise of many. There will be some who are going down. There will be some who are brought up. Jesus is going to shake things up. He's going to cause a stir. It's a little bit like the past few years in our country, isn't it? Where we have COVID and things like this. And a lot of people just start to reconsider their lives. Various circumstances around that cause that. And many people move or they take a different job or they say we want to move to a different house and all kinds of things just happen that just sort of shake things up where maybe they had become on a little bit of autopilot well imagine that but just multiply it by a whole lot more Jesus Jesus is going to cause people to go these different directions and people are going to split he's going to come through town like a fault line and people are going to go on one side or the other which side will it be well they have to make the choice when it shows up the division will be about how a person responds to Jesus. And things are going to get sorted out. He's going to bring himself in and he's going to shake things up. And people who are high will be brought low and people who are low will be brought high. And it will become evident what a person really is. Now it's important to note something about this, which is that this is not the expectation that everyone would have had concerning the Messiah. Old Testament passages speak constantly about the total redemption and salvation of the nation of Israel. So this would not seem to align with what people maybe thought. The nation is said to all be delivered at some point. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says this. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. He says everyone in Israel at that time will know the Lord. And on the basis of this and other Old Testament promises, the expectation was that the Messiah would just come and save everyone. But those who held such an expectation weren't considering at least two other things. One is the promises about the rejection of the Messiah. Because God not only ordained for Jesus to be the Savior, but he also for, ordained for this to happen despite the people's rejection of him and through the people's rejection of him. They would nail him to the cross, as Peter says, by the hands of godless men. Israel would reject their Messiah. Many of them would be unbelieving. And so in Isaiah 53, we read that uh, he says in verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They didn't esteem him. They didn't recognize him. They thought nothing of him. In fact, 
many times less than nothing, they determined that he needed to be killed. And so he would be rejected by Israel and nailed to a cross. Which means that there would be many among the nation who would see their Messiah, but would not see him as the Messiah. And they would remain unsaved as they do to this day. So then one missing piece from their messianic expectation was the piece that said that he would be rejected. The other missing piece, of course, is the knowledge we now have of two comings of Christ. If Christ had to come and save everyone, why didn't he do that when he came? Well, because that wasn't his task the first time around. In one sense, it's simple. He's going to do it. He's going to save everyone. But in God's hidden plan that was not revealed until Christ departed from this earth, or at least until he began to speak about that during his earthly ministry, um, we didn't know that he was always planning to do it at his second coming. At his first coming, he would be rejected by many and would cause division. At his second, the nation will turn to him in mass and will look upon the one whom they pierced to save him, to save them from their sins. Jesus then is going to cause division. Along with this, secondly, we find from Simeon in verse 34, Jesus will spark opposition. He'll spark opposition. He says, he's appointed not only for the fall and rise of many in Israel, but for a sign to be opposed. We read about this in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So here we learn that Jesus is going to be a sign and he literally came into the world, at least in part, for people to oppose him. This was part of his job, to go and to make enemies. Not just stirring up things for the sake of causing trouble. Jesus was not a contentious person like some today who just love a fight. But when the light shines so brightly, people in the darkness don't want it around. Uh, a few years ago, I decided to get some exercise equipment to put in my garage. Uh, it seemed like that would be a pretty convenient way to, put, to get some workouts in. And so I was glad to have it. The only problem is that there was only uh, a single... 60 watt light bulb on that side to light the whole garage and it just wasn't very pleasant in there so I had uh, read about uh, one of these little devices that screws into the light uh, socket but it has some uh, some adjustable fan looking things three of them that would be able to, to go any different direction and spread light throughout the whole thing so I ordered one of those and uh, it fit in great it turned on it worked right away LED it's going to last for years the only problem is you could have helped an airplane land with the lighting from that thing because it was just so bright. And I figured it wouldn't do me any good to exercise if I couldn't see where I was going when I was in there or when I walked out. So I returned those lights and I got something similar that was a lot less bright. And now I'm really happy with what I have. But what's the point? Um, I couldn't take the light. It was just too much. It was right in my eyes. It was, it was too much for me. It was too much for me. Too intense. And it made me uncomfortable just to walk in the room. So what did I do? Well, I got rid of it. I didn't want it anymore, so I just got rid of it. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. He's like that super 
bright light. He shows up, and certain people like it because they love the glory that comes from him. But other people are like, we don't want this shining on us. This bothers us. You're dealing with our sin. You're getting into our hearts. You're not just letting us kind of live our life and our rituals. You're not just letting us be okay with our surface religion that we've always practiced and with our culture and our nice Jewish families. you got to get out of here. And what do they do? Well, having been confronted with the reality of where they stood before God, they ran away from him or they ran over him and they put him to death. Jesus then is going to cause division and he's going to spark opposition. And it's because of that last reaction that we'll find the fulfillment of Simeon's third point to Mary. Verse 35. In verse 35 we learn Jesus will bring pain to Mary's soul. Said these were hard words to hear. Jesus will bring pain to Mary's soul. Imagine being told with your 40-day-old child... Verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. This is a large, broad sword that will pass through, it emphatically states, your own soul itself. You, Mary, will suffer this pain. You, Mary, will have something pierced through, not your body, but your soul. You're going to hurt. You're going to hurt. This woman who has just called herself blessed among all women in the previous chapter is now faced with some sobering realities that there's going to come a time when her life is extremely painful. This is one of the godliest women there is. She is referred to as righteous and she exercises faith in God's promise and she obeys God at every point that we find in this account. And yet she is going to suffer immensely because sometimes... In God's perfectly wise plan, that's the way that he has decided things will go. This is a particular kind of pain that's unusual. Sometimes a son will bring pain to his mother by virtue of how bad he is. And the scriptures speak of this in such places as the Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 1, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a what? A grief to his mother. Proverbs 17, 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And in fact, it's only an evil child who's unconcerned about the effect that his behavior has upon his mother's heart. A child who is more concerned with self-indulgence than with loving the one who gave him life. And that's a certain kind of pain that is real and difficult. But Jesus is not, of course, that kind of son. Jesus is a different kind of son, a perfectly obedient son. In fact, in verse 51 of this chapter, we're going to find that he continued in subjection to his parents. He continued in subjection to them despite the fact that he's the son of God. Or maybe, rather, because of the fact that he's the son of God and he's perfectly godly. So how then, if he is not rebellious, would Mary's soul be brought pain by this one? Well, I think the answer is obvious to all of us who know the gospel, isn't it? Because this one is going to suffer and live a life of hardship, in particular during the last three years of his life and his earthly ministry. And she is going to see him be nailed to a cross and die an agonizing death. And so it would indeed be a future fact for her that a sword would pierce even her own soul. Jesus will do one more thing according to Simeon. Jesus will expose hearts. Jesus will expose 
hearts. Now, this picks up where verse 34 left off. Um, Verse 35, the first half about Mary and the sword is kind of parenthetical. You can see that even with the dashes in certain translations. Um, But this just brings back and says he's going to be opposed. He is going to cause many to rise and fall. And the outcome of this is that many thoughts, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus is going to expose hearts. What's he going to do? He's going to look. He's going to come into the world. And the question could be asked, are they true worshipers? Do they know God? Are they humble concerning their sins? Or are they stubborn and proud? Are they seeking, as Paul says in Romans 2, glory and honor and immortality? And therefore they will have eternal life? Or are they rebellious and stubborn and rejecting of God's word? Israel and those who lived in it, could feign obedience to God. They could pretend to be obedient a lot more easily before Jesus came. They could just go through the motions. They could offer the sacrifices. They could go up to the temple year by year and in the appointed weeks. They could go when they sinned and do these things. And they could do all of these external things. And in fact, they could follow the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and add all of these ceremonial rituals to their lives. And they could look to anyone around them just like anyone else as if they are a worshiper of God. It's not that God was okay with that. He always, in the Old Testament, expressed his displeasure with insincere worship. There were times when he said, stop singing, I hate your music. And it wasn't a style thing. It was their hearts. They weren't true worshipers, and yet they came to ask, act like they were true and sincere. What's the deal then? Well, when Jesus came, he forced the issue. He took all these people who were practicing ritualistic religion and he said, is that really sincere? Is that really true? Are you actually following God? And the way that he did that was not by saying, you know, just kind of think about it and see if you feel sincere when you do this. You know, do you really just, when you offer that and you're giving that sacrifice, is there like a bubbling feeling in your stomach, you know, when you make, when you cut that animal's throat and when you put it on the altar, does that make you feel like, I just love to worship God? That's not what he's doing. The sincerity is, are you just doing the external visible things or are you obeying God at every point? Do you fear him? Do you obey him in public and in private? Do you obey him for the praise of men or for the praise of God? Do you actually do what God says consistently? Do you long for him to come? Are you okay with putting aside the things of the world if that means that you're obeying God and you pursue the things that he says? This is what Jesus did. He forced the issue, and he wouldn't just let the externals or the bare minimum go. He demanded actual sincere obedience to the law. He came in Matthew 5 to fulfill the law, to give it its full weight, its full teaching. And so he wasn't okay with just not killing someone. He says you can't call them names and hate them either. He wasn't okay with just not committing adultery. He says you can't make up these excuses for divorce or have these inordinate or these wrong desires. He says you can't just swear these little tricks. Instead, you need to be sincere in all your words. This is what Jesus came to do. He forced the issue and he exposed hearts. And people who seemed like they were religious were shown to be what they really were. Has that happened with you? Where is your worship? Is it sincere? Is it true? Because this is what Jesus does still to this day. When you learn about him in truth, everything about him forces the issue with you. He requires that you take sides. Are you with him? Or are you against him? And that decision is an exact proxy for the decision you have to make between serving God and serving yourself. 
So Jesus is brought into your life. Jesus' word is brought into your life. How do you respond? Do you say, hey, get that out of here. It's a little too serious. It's a little bit too much religion for me. Or do you say, you know, this is painful, but I might have to give this up. This is painful, but yeah, I do have to acknowledge that I didn't do what Scripture said there. Or this is going to be hard and a long, long slog, but I'm going to strive to be the kind of character that God, that God speaks of here in his word. This is what Simeon had to say. Anna is the other. Her words are a lot more straightforward, and we'll look at them briefly. We read not only Simeon's testimony about Jesus, but Anna's as well. Her biography is this. She was a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She had the gift of being a prophetess. This was her gift. And her age was, as it says here, 84 years old. She was advanced in years. She lived with her husband seven years, but then for the next six decades or so, she had lived basically in the temple. Not night and day, not uh, literally sleeping there necessarily. It says she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So all of the time, um, there would have been no place necessarily for her to sleep in the temple. So this is uh, something of a figure of speech. But the point is that she is there every waking hour. She just goes there all the time. Her gift is a prophetess. So when she speaks here in verse 38, her words have authority. And her testimony about Jesus is accurate. She was 84 years old and she never left the temple. Her activity was that she never left the temple. And she didn't just not leave the temple, but she served with fastings and prayers, devoting her life to God, devoting her life to God. And she serves as an example for us. But even more than an example for us, we learn from her words, her words of thanks. At that moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God And then her words about Jesus, she continued to speak of him. Uh, And the language here is that she was literally doing this at that moment. She was giving thanks to God and speaking of him. Not so much that she left there and kept doing that, though she probably did after Jesus was gone. But she was talking about Jesus to everyone who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what Jesus came to do. And she says, this is the one who is bringing this about. This is the one who is going to rescue your people and your nation. Finally, in verses 39 to 40, and we'll see more of this in next week's passage, so we'll only just briefly note this here. We learn about the early childhood of Jesus. The early childhood of Jesus. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. This takes place. Um, there is some, some stuff between the first half of the verse and the second, which Matthew 2 lays out about the wise men coming and Jesus going to Egypt and then coming back into Judea before they ultimately go to Jerusalem or up to Nazareth, rather. Matthew speaks of certain things and Luke speaks of certain things and then they sort of overlap and interlock between them historically and then these parallel accounts and they kind of give us a more full picture when we put them together. And the child grows and becomes strong and increases in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. You say, how does the Son of God increase in wisdom? Well, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. Because we're going to see that when we get into the next passage. How do you respond to Jesus Christ? Are you opposing him? Are you being sifted and sorted by him? How does he reveal your thoughts 
whatever it might be, you know what you need to do. Respond to him in faith. And if you haven't done that, now is the time. And if you have, what a comfort it is to know that you're not alone, that this one has been appointed for this, and that even when other people don't believe, this is already predicted ahead of time. And so Jesus is the one who brings salvation for us, for all of us who believe. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. What an incredible person he is, and he is said to be even in his very, very young age. And we look forward to learning even more about him and pray that you might teach us concerning him and all that he is, all that he did, and all that he means for us. We pray in his name. Amen.